Blog Talk Radio. This is Dr. Ross Green. Welcome to Collaborative Problem Solving at Home. I'm delighted that you were able to join in. This program airs each Tuesday at 11 a.m. Eastern Time during the school year. We explore a variety of topics aimed at helping you better understand and help your challenging child and implement the collaborative problem-solving approach at home. If you have a question or comment, call 347-994-2981. That's 347-994-2981. If you call in, you'll be muted until I bring you on the air. And now, let's talk about your challenging child and what we can do to make things better. Hi there. Welcome to the program. It's a snowy day here in uh, the Boston area. So we are coated in white, not anywhere near what other people in other parts of the country, especially south of here, have gotten over the last few weeks, but uh, still pretty, my attitude. If you're going to be cold, it might as well be pretty. And it's been cold. But uh, these are your 45 minutes. As always, once a week, we take a step back from life with a challenging kid and try to get some perspective and try to get ourselves organized so that we can jump back into the fray with a plan and with the right lenses on. Um, So if you're working with a child at home who's not responding very well to Plan B yet, I should add, uh, having trouble with any aspect of doing Plan B, running into trouble getting your co-parent or the grandparents or coaches, teachers to buy in. This is your opportunity to call in, comment, ask questions, get the support you need, or just listen to what's going on with others who are using the collaborative problem-solving approach. Once again, that number to call in, 347-994-2981. Lots of folks are uh, on school vacation this week, so... um, who knows, that, that could be, uh, well, that may, may make it hard for some people to listen in live today if the kids are home, um, or maybe some folks are off doing something fun. If you're a little hesitant to call in, you can always send a question electronically through the contact form on the Lives in the Balance website. That's www.livesinthebalance.org. And as I uh, indicated I was going to do today, Today's going to be uh, clearing out the inbox day. Now, if, if you send me an email, if you send me a question through the Lives in the Balance website, I respond to all of them personally, so you're guaranteed a personal response. But I also um, uh, save some of them, some of the ones that um, highlight some common things that people struggle with, whether it's just with challenging kids in general or with implementing collaborative problem solving in particular. Um, So I thought we'd uh, go through some of the uh, emails today. All these people have been responded to already, but these are the ones I saved just to make uh, some important points for purposes of this program. Um, Boy, we had a fascinating program, by the way, last week. A mom called in. Um, We spent most of the program uh, talking with her and some of the things that were important to clear up with her being able to 
do Plan B effectively with her son. Now, here, here's here's some emails from folks who haven't necessarily called in, but the questions are uh, just as pertinent. This is a this is a tough one. Um, I'm not going to read the whole thing, but uh, life in our house has gone beyond stressful, downright horrible. My eight-year-old daughter seems like life is playing out in the pages of your book, The Explosive Child. Put things in a new perspective for me. I'm trying to keep it together and get some control. It's one thing to read the book, another thing to put things in place ahead of time, and yet another to do it in a calm manner. I feel my blood boil, and it's hard not to bark and get mad. Do you have suggestions for how to end my own vapor lock so I can be pleasant for my daughter? Valium? That's not me saying that. That's in the email. Will she grow out of this? Um, People who are doing collaborative problem solving, you may be comforted to know, still bark sometimes and still feel their blood boil. Sometimes, I don't know many parents who don't bark sometimes and whose blood doesn't boil sometimes. Of course, when you have a challenging kid, you're barking more and your blood is boiling more. And if, this goes without saying, if boiling blood and barking worked, and of course nobody thinks it does, but if it did work, you'd be barking and having your blood boil less. I don't know if uh, 100% elimination of barking and blood boiling is the goal. I think making things better is the goal. I will say this. Blood boils more and barking is more likely to occur when we are dealing with an unsolved problem emergently. So my best way of helping people's blood boil less and bark less is to do what we've been talking about on this program um, and what I try to help parents do when I'm working with them directly. And that is, let's make sure we've got the right lenses on first. Challenging kids are challenging because they're lacking the skills not to be challenging. If they had those skills, we'd be seeing them. It's a developmental delay. I find that people's blood boils more and they bark more when they feel that the kid's challenging behavior is under the kid's control, or worse yet, if they feel like the kid is doing this on purpose for any of a variety of ulterior motives, attention-seeking, manipulative, limit-testing, one that I hear frequently, he likes seeing me lose control. It makes him feel like he's in control. I don't believe that. That's somebody else's theory. Let's make sure we have the right lenses on. Just getting the right lenses on, I find, helps blood boil less and reduces barking. But obviously, if that was all there was to it, well, that's not all there is to it. There's more to it. But the lenses are huge. Then we're making, so we're making a list using the assessment of lagging skills and unsolved problems. We're getting to know the kid through the prism of lagging skills. But of course, since it takes two to tango, it's not just the kid lacking skills, it's the environment demanding those skills that sets challenging behavior in motion. 
And that occurs under specific conditions that I call unsolved problems. Unsolved problems. Let's make a list of those. Those are the specific conditions under which challenging behavior is occurring reliably and predictably. Now, I used to call them triggers, but I don't call them triggers anymore because the word trigger makes it sound like the um, event setting the challenging behavior in motion is occurring just before the challenging behavior is set in motion, and that's not always true. I think unsolved problems is a much more apt description of what sets challenging behavior in motion. The, the event preceding the challenging behavior doesn't always occur immediately preceding, preceding the challenging behavior. Trigger's not the ideal word. Sorry I used it back then. Unsolved problem. Now we're... Well, that points us directly toward what we ought to do next. Um, let's start solving problems. And now the... Well, now we're... Now we're organized. Got, we've got, got one more thing to do to get organized. We've got to decide which unsolved problems we're working on first, what our priorities are. And, and this is where Plan C comes in. We're deciding that we're going to table some of the unsolved problems because we can't solve them all at once. Boy, nothing like putting a problem in Plan C and saying to oneself, you know what, I don't care about that one right now. I know which ones I care about. I know which ones I'm working on, and I know which ones I'm not working on and which I can't care about right now, because if I try to care about them all, I'm not going to get any of them solved. Let's get organized. Take a step back. Decide what we're working on right now, what we're not working on right now. The ones we're not working on right now, they'll wait. What we've been doing up until now hasn't been working very well, so they'll wait a little bit longer. Let's go after one two, maximum three of our unsolved problems and leave the rest for a snowy day. Good. We're organized. But identifying what we're working on right now sets the stage for another barking reducer and boiling blood reducer. It sets the stage for us to start solving those problems proactively. I find that trying to solve a problem once our blood is already boiling and once we're already barking, not the ideal timing. But that's why we've made that list of unsolved problems. It permits us to identify not only which conditions are reliably and predictably setting the stage for challenging behavior, teeth brushing, homework, um, getting out the door to go to school, waking up in the morning, going to bed at night, amount of time the kid is spending in front of the screen or playing video games or sibling interactions. All highly predictable unsolved problems that we can be solving proactively. Not when our blood's boiling, not when we're already barking, but proactively so that we can reduce the likelihood of our blood boiling and barking. Now, in this mom's email, she's also telling me that um, dad says he's too busy for all of this. I, I hope not. Maybe we need to talk to dad about, um, well, maybe dad's thrown in the towel. M maybe what dad's 
doesn't have time for is learning about plan B. Maybe dad has a strong preference for plan A. Mm. Well, if dad's influence as a disciplinarian in the family is neutral, well, maybe, not ideally, but maybe mom can make some headway on her own. Otherwise, there's some more talking to be done. What's too busy mean? We don't know yet. Mom? Good luck. I I think the ingredients that I just described help blood boil less and help people bark less. You're in for the long haul, though. Remember that. Collaborative problem solving is not magic. And please don't forget, I know that this sometimes sounds sappy when people say it, but please don't forget to take some space for yourself. I don't know. Maybe it's only 15 minutes a day. Maybe you'd know better. Maybe it's listening to this program. You're 15 to 45 minutes a day where you take yourself out of being consumed by the challenging behavior and just treat yourself okay. Here's another one. Are some developmental delays a result of changes such as puberty? My son didn't really start having problems in school until the sixth grade although he was always demanding and emotional at home. Remember, as I just described, challenging behavior occurs when the demands of the environment exceed a person's capacity to respond adaptively, exceed the skills that a kid has to respond adaptively. So there's lots of kids who have the skills to handle infancy, okay? Have the skills to handle the demands of being a toddler, okay? Have the skills to handle the demands of preschool and kindergarten and elementary school, okay. And it wasn't until they started experiencing the demands of junior or middle high school that the demands being placed upon them exceeded their capacity to respond adaptively. You never know when that's going to happen. But it always takes that combination, the demands of the environment, and the skills someone has to deal with those demands. So, yeah, it's not supremely uncommon for a kid to be cruising along in school and then, when the demands of school changed, to run into trouble. I don't attribute much to puberty. I think that, and I'm not the only one who says this, I think that adolescence is a bit overrated. I know that's it's a bit overrated as a uh, as a change that sets challenging behavior in motion. There's, there's no question. Um, many kids change their outlook and their approach to the adults in their lives when they hit adolescence, but what you're working on is the unsolved problems that tend to pop up in adolescence. Um, curfew. Um, wanting to be more independent. Um, dating, um, exposure to peers who are using substances. You tend not to have to deal with that stuff when a kid's a toddler and mostly not in elementary school. Those are unsolved problems that pop up later. Here's how the empathy step would sound if we were trying to do it on the unsolved problem of adolescence.
I've noticed that you're an adolescent now. What's up? No, that's not the unsolved problem. I've noticed we've been arguing a lot lately about um, me telling you what to do, especially me telling you to get off the computer. What's up? Especially me telling you that you're texting too much. What's up? Now, those are your unsolved problems. Not adolescence, not puberty. Specific unsolved problems. My bet is that a kid can't do much about the onset of puberty or adolescence. Let's talk about stuff we can actually do something about. Here's another. Dr. Green, my nine-year-old has been diagnosed as ADHD but has high impulsivity and anger issues that have worsened over the years. We have a family history of bipolar disorder. Psychiatrists are asking us if we want him treated for ADHD or bipolar. The effects of the meds either way scare us, and we've tried several with side effects, but no change in his behavior. That's part of the question. Dr. Green, what you say makes sense, but how do you get through the anger, control, disrespect, lack of caring when it affects almost everything in his life? Where do we start? I'm such a predictable guy. You start by identifying the lagging skills so that you've got the right lenses on. Diagnoses don't help you figure out what skills a kid is lacking. And I sure wouldn't want to be the parent who has to make the decision about whether it's going to be meds that are traditionally used to treat bipolar disorder or meds that are traditionally used to treat ADHD that are the ones that should be used. That sounds like a professional decision. And I, quite frankly, I'm not sure that, and meds, of course, are not my area, but my experience tells me that I'm not sure I would have medis- I would have a diagnosis be the primary factor dictating medicine selection. There are people who medicate that way, but sure are a lot of kids who are, whose primary diagnosis is pediatric bipolar disorder who are on stimulants, and sure are a lot of kids whose primary diagnosis is ADHD who are on mood stabilizers. I think you want to get the right lenses on. That's the where do we start. And then where you start next is deciding, given what seems to be getting in my kid's way, are there any that medication would treat well? There are some things medication treats very well, hyperactivity and poor impulse control among them. Anger issues is a bit too vague. There are people who would tell you that there's an there are anger medicines, but I think you need to get more specific about what's setting the anger in motion before you can get a good bead on whether medication is going to be helpful. Then make a list. Use the assessment of lagging skills and unsolved problems. You can download it from the Lives in the Balance website in the paperwork section. Make a list of the unsolved problems that are reliably and predictably precipitating your kids' challenging episodes. By the way, if, you, if the people you're working with, oh, what else does medicine do well? Sorry, jumping around a little here. Medicine does hyperactivity and poor impulse control well. Medicine can sometimes do obsessiveness well. Medicine 
can sometimes be helpful for mood enhancement in kids. And medicine can be good for lengthening a kid's fuse if the kid has shown us that large doses of Plan B and Plan C and significantly reduced doses of Plan A haven't lengthened his fuse enough. Those are some of the more common things that medicine does well. Um, this mom's going to need a medication professional to help her decide whether medicine has a role to play here. Back to our list of unsolved problems. Big question, now that we have our list of unsolved problems, can this kid participate in Plan B? Or is the kid so hyperactive that he or she can't even stand there and have the conversation, so impulsive that Plan B done proactively still not possible. So irritable or has such an unstable, volatile presentation that Plan B is not going to be possible until medicine is on board. Some important questions to be asking, but hard to make a call on medicine without knowing if a kid has things coming into play that medicine would treat well and without yet knowing whether Plan B is possible without aid of medication. This, quite frankly, is why I'm referring kids for medicine less often these days. There are some kids for whom medicine is absolutely indispensable, let there be no doubt. And there's no particular diagnosis that I'm referring to there. And there are some kids who I might quite some time back have referred for medication, but then once we started doing Plan B, Plan C, and significantly reduced amounts of Plan A, that it didn't look like they needed medication at all anymore. Here's another. Our major problem is that our son is overly physical with our daughter, often pushing, hitting, or tackling her, or just smothering her with love. Sometimes, like when she grabs a toy which she wants, there's an obvious trigger. Sometimes there isn't. He'll be seemingly in a great mood. She'll just walk by and he'll take her out, for example. I've tried asking him why he hurts his sister, and he can't think of an answer or will change the subject. Is my question too broad? Is he too young to get to his own feelings about why the very presence of his sister is such a trigger for him? seems to love her a lot, but he can't get control around her. Whereas at school, he's controlling himself quite well. Thanks for your question. Um, I do think that the question might be too broad. You know, in the, in the empathy step, you're trying to get a very specific unsolved problem entered into consideration. If you go with too vague of an unsolved problem, I've noticed you have trouble being around your sister very vague and very vague unsolved problems heighten the likelihood that a kid is going to say I don't know or shrug or respond defensively or just sit there 
or change the subject. I think we want to get as specific as possible and probably actually select a situation in which, and this mom gave us one, when he grabs a toy, when a sister grabs a toy which he wants. As I mentioned earlier, I've moved away from the word trigger uh, in favor of unsolved problem, although that seems to be an example in which trigger might actually apply. Luckily, unsolved problem applies as well. Here's what the empathy step might sound like. I've noticed that when your sister grabs a toy that you want, that's very hard for you. What's up? Remember, the observation should be neutral as well. See, um, I don't know that the very presence of his sister is a trigger for him. That's a uh, conclusion, but not necessarily one that I would draw. I, I think we'd get that information, by the way, by asking about a specific unsolved problem in the empathy step. I think there's some chance we'd get. Um, I just can't stand being around her. I don't like the way she breathes. She's always humming. She's always taking stuff that I want to play with. Good. Now we're getting that information. I think you're much more likely to get specific information from a kid, actionable information as I've come to call it, when you're um, asking about a specific unsolved problem rather than something really vague. So in other words, I wouldn't start with, I've noticed that just being around your sister is hard for you. I'm betting, I could be wrong, I don't know this kid or his mom or his sister beyond this email, but I'm betting there are times when the boy and his sister are actually getting along okay. I could be completely wrong about that. I'd still start the empathy step with a neutral observation that was specific to a very specific unsolved problem. Now, that email um, is similar to another one. Uh, let me search through here. Where is this? Ah, no, not that one. It was a mom asking me uh, if it's possible that her son, how was it possible that her son does okay at school, and not at home. The challenging behavior is at home. How is this possible? Well, and by the way, we do seem to have a caller from area code 519, but I'm not sure if you're just listening to the program through the phone, which is fine. Ah, <laughs> the hand just went up. I'll uh, take your call right after I answer this question. Uh, we're running a tight ship here in this classroom. If we don't raise our hand, we don't get called on. Truth is, some people call in to listen to the show and uh, don't necessarily want to participate in the program. Uh, so now I know that our caller from area code 519 wants to. Let me just answer that question first. Um, is it possible that a kid would do, quote-unquote, fine at school and not at home? Yeah, the demands at school may be completely different. For all this entire program, plus all the ones that came before it, 
We've been talking about challenging behavior as occurring when the demands of the environment exceed a kid's capacity to respond adaptively. The demands of home are often different from the demands of school. School's more structured, school's more predictable. School, you're not exactly sure what's going on. You just look around you and see what's going on. School has advantages that homes don't. Plus, some kids are able to muster the energy to hold it together at school. Then they completely decompensate when they get home. That doesn't mean that they necessarily have skills and they're only showing them at school and not at home. It just shows that they are able to put forth massive amounts of energy while at school so as to not embarrass themselves. And then when they get home, the embarrassment factor is gone. The prototypical presentation of, uh, well, now I'm going to say a diagnosis, even though I don't love diagnoses. The prototypical presentation of oppositional defiant disorder is that it occurs at home and not at school. But that's not because the parents are doing something wrong. It's for the reasons that I just described. Let's see uh, what kind of issues our caller wants to bring up. Then we may turn our attention to some other questions by email. But um, caller, you're on the air. Hello, Dr. Green. Um, I called about a month ago about my two children, uh, an older one and a younger one, who are fighting a lot. Yep. And I'm calling to give a bit of an update, and then I have another question. We love updates. Well, the, the fighting has um, decreased quite a lot. Um, the younger one had a... He was afraid of being... Um, well, he, he, his frustration occurs when his older brother takes over, and the older one, uh, his frustration uh, occurs because he just doesn't have the language, he didn't have the tools to express that he was frustrated. And I remember those are some of the things that we talked about when you called in. That's right, yes. Good, and it sounds like you followed up on that stuff, yes? I did, yeah, and we've Good been for you. steadily over the last uh, four weeks. And the, the older one and the younger one, um, they've got to this point where uh, where one of them gets frustrated, they'll say, I'm frustrated, the older one will ask the younger one to please stop if he's hitting, and most of the time he will. Um, and then if they can't resolve the problem, if it becomes too much for them, they're learning to ask for help. From parents? From, from a parent. Outstanding. So three steps are greatly reducing the number and the frequency of the, um, the hitting. That is outstanding. Another thing that's really been helpful is um, you presented in your book and probably on your show um, three standard ways of dealing generically with a problem um, to give a little bit, ask for help, and do it a different way. And we've, we've said that over and over again, and the children are starting to get that. And when they are having problems between themselves, um, I will often hear them say, well, maybe you can give a little or let's do it a different way. And so that's becoming much more natural for them to um, problem-solve their initial problems, and then they can get out of this frustration. And that's been very helpful. Outstanding. Thank you for the update. Well, thank you for your help. Now, before we let you go, yes. are you ready? 
Yes. Always one to shoot for the absolute most durable solution, and I am ecstatic that things are better. And I'm, you know, you've noticed, you know, I noticed you didn't call back after one week or after two because sometimes it takes a while for things to take hold, and that's definitely true of collaborative problem solving. Here's my only question that might suggest that there's a little bit more work to be done. Ready? Yes. And this came up today with some clinicians who I'm teaching to do collaborative problem solving. Right now, some, not all, but some of the solutions that are working, and I'm glad they're working, are solutions that are working, that are supposed to kick in when things are already bad. And there is definitely a place for those solutions. But now that the smoke has cleared a little bit, I would want to encourage you to go back and take a second look at whether the conditions under which things are still getting bad are highly predictable unsolved problems. Because, and I'm, once again, um, this is not me being critical. This is just me saying, well, this is what I would do if, I was, if it was a family that I was working with. Um, solutions that are predominantly aimed at what a kid should do when things are already bad, those are fine, but I find that over time they, they may have a tendency to wane in terms of their effectiveness. So now that the smoke has cleared, I'm encouraging you to go back and take a look at are there still problems that need to be solved that if we solve them, then the solutions that we're using once things are already bad, we wouldn't need those so much anymore because now we're busy solving the problems that are setting those bad moments in motion in the first place. Does that make sense? Yes, it does. I think there's uh, a number of things that... Um that we could address, uh, fatigue, uh, transitions, things like that. Beautiful. Setting and, the stage for those things. Right. Otherwise, we are left, and this is not. This is certainly an improvement. It's just, uh, I wouldn't call it the holy grail, and I'll take improvement any day of the week, by the way, so this is not me complaining in the least. I'm, I am delighted that over the last month things have gotten better. This is me now saying, let's see if we can make things even more reliably better. Let's now go after some of the unsolved problems that are, when they kick in, requiring the solutions that we are encouraging the kids to use, ask for help, especially once they're in the heat of the moment. I'd like to get rid of the heat of the moment as much as possible in the first place by solving the problems that are setting in motion heat in the heat of the moment. Make sense? That makes perfect sense, yes. Great. And, of course, you're welcome to call back anytime. Oh, thank you. And anything else you wanted to tell us about how things are going? Well, I have a, a, bit, a bit of a problem, a, a roadblock I'm running into. Mm -hmm. I'm having trouble convincing my spouse to do the uh, problem solving. And What uh, seems to be the hang-up? Well, my spouse is in a very, very demanding post-secondary education training at the moment. Okay. And it's just she's fatigued, exhausted, tired, and not really um, wanting to learn about this extra thing right now um, she notices that things are improving when I do it but um, I, I can't it, it, it's frustrating because a lot of the gains that I'm making can sometimes feel like they are erased in a moment when planning is used inappropriately or at, at the wrong time 
Got it. So here's what I was going to ask you. Uh, I mentioned this a little bit earlier. Um, when I'm working with a family or when somebody I'm teaching to do, a clinician I'm teaching to do collaborative problem solving is working with a family, and we have one parent who is primarily taking on plan B and another parent who is either because of work or, as in your case, um, just completely flat out uh, in school uh, or in a job or whatever, if that parent isn't able to participate in the process, then at the very least what we're shooting for, first of all, we don't want to throw in the towel on that parent. We'd want to learn more about whether um, it's possible for that parent to participate. Um, my bet is that you've already explored that. Well, and it can I make like one, another comment? Um, I tried doing the LSTEP on the other parent. Oh, my. <laughs> well, not, not I'm so sure much. that went over well, yes? It, uh, no, no I, not uh, sharing it with the other parent. <laughs> Got it. But in terms of lagging skills, the other parent uh, seems to share a lot of the lagging skills that my child has. So I don't know if that's common or not. But Well, it's uh, certainly common for all human beings to be lacking some crucial cognitive skills that are related to being flexible, dealing well with frustration, and solving problems. That's not uncommon. Yeah, I, I, I would agree with that, and I certainly see, see some of those issues for myself. Yeah, yeah. We all, we're all lacking crucial cognitive skills. Yeah. Um, but uh, the, the thing that has me, and Plan B, by the way, many people, when I'm like doing public speaking, will ask the question, what if the adult is lacking crucial skills as well? And the reality is, since I almost always find that to be the case, Plan B was designed to help adults and kids learn those skills together. It's not only the kid who's picking up some crucial cognitive skills when you're doing Plan B, it's the adult who's doing Plan B with the kid as well. So the, the big question to me is, um, and I don't know if we have enough details on this, is um, is it just the fact that your co-parent is flat out with school, or is it some of the more common things that I run into with parents who are a little bit reluctant to jump into the Plan B waters? Um, this is new. Um, uh, I don't think I'm going to be good at it yet. Um, philosophically, I'm not on board yet if, if I've even been exposed to the philosophy of collaborative problem solving. What I do with families is, is if I have a parent who's not going to be involved in doing collaborative problem solving, at the very least, I want them to be neutral. Neutral. How we do don't you, want them uh, to undermine the gains or offset the gains that are being made with Plan B with Plan A. Now, neutrality is not always possible, so then comes the next question. First question is, is there a way to get your co-parent involved that hasn't happened yet? I don't know the answer to that. Next question, is there a way to, if not, is there a way to help your co-parent at least be neutral? Next question, if not, your household is going to be a mix of Plan B and Plan A. Now comes the really pragmatic question. All right, so now, if I can't have both parents, if it's a two-parent family doing Plan B, then I at least want one of them doing Plan B. And yes, when Plan A does show up, it's going to be frustrating for the Plan B parent. But 
The goal, of course, is to help you and your co-parent parent together and discuss unsolved problems and how you all are approaching them. That's plain old good co-parenting. And so it sounds like there's some additional work to be done, not necessarily for the purpose of getting your co-parent on board, per se, although that might be the ultimate agenda, but mostly just for the purpose of talking through how specific unsolved problems are being handled and how you all are going to try to work better as a team. That all make sense? Yes. Sometimes parents who are Plan B enthusiasts, and of course I don't blame them, I welcome it, go into those discussions with the agenda of converting the unconverted. And I don't think that's the agenda. I think this is a more general conversation about co-parenting specific unsolved problems and how we can work better together as a team. I see. I think one of the difficulties we're both having is um, the Plan B method is a little bit... um, it's countercultural for us. Okay. Um, we come from a, kind of an Asian upbringing where there is um, the reverence and respect for the parent. Ah. And it is, um, well, it goes against our training. It goes against our um, way of having done things as children. Yes. And to kind of reprogram ourselves is not the easiest thing to do. I take it you and your significant other are from the same culture. No, no, actually we're not, but we're okay. from different uh, Asian cultures. But both from Asian cultures. That's correct, yes. And are you also saying that though there are differences, clear differences in Asian cultures, you both um, are struggling with the same cultural issue? Yes, I would. Namely about how children are raised? Yes, I would uh, agree with that. So now here's the million-dollar question. Um, How have you managed to get past that? Is it because you've um, read more? Because it sounds like your significant other is very caught up in a program and um, could be a time issue. How, How have you managed to get past it and your significant other, even though both of you are um, have Asian ethnicity, uh, how come your significant other hasn't been able to make that transition? I've read more, and it's just been purely repetition. Got it. I've spent a lot of time um, listening to your radio programs. Great. Listening over and over and over again to some of the explanations, and I find the repetition to be extremely helpful. Um, and I've listened to both the at-home and at-school programs. Um, they've been a great help. Just listening to them uh, versus reading them, I guess because I tend to uh, be more geared towards learning from listening. Um, And I think just just that has has, uh, slowly, um, I found myself doing Plan B more and more. Um, Sometimes I waffle back and forth. I I certainly did that in the beginning. Mm -hmm. But it's starting to become more entrenched as a a way of looking at the problem of my uh, children's challenging behavior. This is interesting because um, what you're telling me is that whatever cultural issues may have been coming into play, listening, reading, practicing were the key ingredients that helped you do plan B and put on a different set of lenses. 
here's what I find, not dismissing the potential that culture has influence, but I find that you can find um, interesting definitions of adult authority in every culture, and that the ingredients for getting people to put on different lenses um, and do plan B are the same, almost irrespective of culture. Reading, listening, changing the lenses, practicing. And I am ecstatic that the web-based radio programming has been helpful. Unfortunately, as always, we're out of time for today. Please call back again another time and give us another update, perhaps this time on your co-parent. Next week, no program next week. Talk to you again in two weeks. Good luck with Plan B.